Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, here's how I want to begin this morning. I want to read an article that I recently came across. Eva was in a church luncheon when she got an email from her 12-year-old daughter, Grace. Mom and Dad, I need to tell you I'm not actually a girl. My pronouns are they and them. Eva couldn't breathe. She felt like she'd been punched in the gut. She hadn't seen this coming. In fact, a few months before, Grace had shared on social media her belief that God created people male and female. Back then, Eva was sure that statement would earn Grace, who attended a progressive school, social problems. Instead, it seemed to blow over. I thought I would have gotten bullied, Grace said, who was now 16, then 12 when it occurred. Instead, they decided to re-educate me. I got invited to two groups where all they wanted to talk about was transgender stuff. Over the course of a few months, I decided I was going to be agender. And then I ended up deciding I was a boy. Grace was experiencing what is often called rapid onset gender dysphoria, in which friendships groups began to experience similar gender questions at the same time. One in five Generation Z now identify as LGBT+. That's double the number of millennials, which is one in ten, and four times the number of the gen... Generation X, which is 1 in 20. Surprisingly, 40% of of Generation Z and Millennials also identify as religious. Increasingly, Christian pastors, youth pastors, and parents are fielding questions and declarations from young people examining their gender or sexual orientation. And that's the way the article began from July of 2021, as I read it. As you can imagine, it caught my attention. It's an attention-grabbing introduction. It's not the first time that I'd been introduced to the issue, but that was not the part that most alarmed me. The percentage who claimed to be LGBT plus was surprising, but I was most alarmed to understand how many believe it to be compatible with Christian doctrine. And with the new school year beginning, there's a great deal of conversation about it throughout our own area. The issue of sexual identity and gender is pervading and dominating every area of our society today. Government, medicine and healthcare, business, media, entertainment, but maybe most feverishly, education there's an intentional agenda, though not necessarily unified across, across all fields, that's radically reorienting our culture and society in a direction that stands in opposition to biblical teaching and opposes and undermines all that is good for humanity. We may not know exactly how to confront every argument that arises, and we may not know how to address every situation in which we find ourselves but, never, but let it never be said of Christ's followers that we ignored such a grievous lie and a deception with our silence. 
Do not be confused. The core of these ideologies are atheistic and God-denying. We are not facing an argument simply over ideas. We are engaging a battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And where ideologies and movements blatantly oppose God's creational design and his commands of scripture, Christians hold a responsibility to God We hold a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we hold a responsibility to our fellow humans to speak up and to labor for the good of humanity in bearing a faithful witness to the truth of God's word. My sermon plan for the next two weeks is to speak on biblical sexuality and gender. Today, week one, I will speak on a biblical foundation And I will do so, as I'll show you in just a moment, out of 1 Peter 3, and that organizing the series itself, not the content of the message. But I intend today to lay a foundation for our defense and our hope as Christians in this world. Addressing the question, what do we do? Well, this is where we must begin. Next week, I will take a missional approach from the foundation laid today. And I will talk about how do we bear a faithful witness in the world and address situations as I have seen them come up in the news and other situations. I begin in this way. I admit I am no authority on this issue. I am reading deeply and widely to learn as much as I possibly can. But I have become most shocked that churches are not speaking to this issue and specifically where they've come to the forefront of news and the social knowledge and recognition. And I say to you, that's wrong. That's wrong. And because of that, I apologize to you today for not having addressed this earlier and not dealing with it sooner. I am providing resources for further study that will best serve you in preparing and greater, or in, with a more greater understanding of your own Christian defense and your own plan of action because I recognize God has put each of us in different places in life and called us to bear a faithful witness in different ways. I want to help you do that. There are two specific resources I point you to. The first one on my website, mlaneharrison.com, tomorrow as you do each week, You will find my sermon post where there will be a video of today's sermon, but there will also be a full manuscript of this message. My manuscripts always include, and most importantly in messages like this, any resources that I cite, quotations that I provide, you'll be able to see the footnotes to show you where I've drawn those from. That will be available tomorrow morning. The second resource is the resource wall in the North Community Room. There are limited copies available of some of the books that I will recommend to you. You can pick those up there. You can pick them up from most any other book retailer as well. Just so you understand, we make no profit off the resource wall. We pass them along at what it costs us to get them, okay? And when I am recommending things, I'm recommending them as resources for what we're talking about. I'm not getting any kickbacks. I don't make profit off of this. I'm 
opposed and turned off when that takes place from the pulpit. But these are resources that we need and that are very helpful. And quite frankly, that I'm leaning on in this series as well. And so let's go to the text. In his letter to the Christians of the first century, Peter exhorts us in this way, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. He says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of all of his word today. I start with these verses because they exhort us to a fidelity in biblical truth and a faithfulness in application for our Christian witness. And these three verses will form the two sermon points that I will provide for you this week and next week. This week, I draw specifically out of verse 15, and what I want you to walk away with today is this, that Christians honor Jesus as Lord when we stand on the truth of a biblical foundation for sexuality and gender. This is how we honor Jesus as Lord. And I want to provide three aspects of a biblical foundation for sexuality and gender today. And looking at this from a perspective of this is our defense, this is our hope. If this is not true, we have no defense and subsequently our hope is fleeting. Let's do that. The first aspect I want to use today is to appeal to the idea of a foundation, a foundation. And the first critical aspect of any foundation is this, it's what it's built on. Before you ever pour the foundation itself, you've got to consider what you're building on because the foundation is only as strong as what it is laid upon. In the Ozarks, we understand this. You buy a piece of property, or actually before you buy a piece of property, you ask one question. Is there a sinkhole on that property, right? Yes. I'm sorry, if that hit a little too close to home for some of you, I didn't intend that. I just, that, that's what we ask. And the biblical foundation that we as Christians establish must be built on the bedrock of God's truth. The rock that will not move. And the first aspect is this. It is God's design and purpose for sexuality. God's design and purpose for sexuality. If you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 1, this is where the scripture begins. And this is where we see God's design and purpose for sexuality. I'm going to begin in verse 26 and read through 28 and then skip to verse 31. Not reading all of it simply because time does not allow. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When God created, he made man, Genesis tells us, the generic term for humankind or people. Verse 26, and, or the first two uses of it in verse 27 rather. He made man in his image in two genders. This is the way that God created. This design was done in order to fulfill God's purpose. To represent him on earth. To multiply and fill the earth. And to exercise dominion. By the way it is written and the words that are presented. Both genders are equal in dignity and in worth. And the creational command is given for both of them to fulfill. But as we will see, it is to be fulfilled in the unique way that each was made. This is not accidental, nor is it evolving. Two genders, male and female, are God's purposeful design for the world and for each person. And of it, God said, this is very good. God created people as a whole, body, mind, and spirit. Yes, there's a lot of argumentation over is the whole of a person two parts or three parts and how you divide that up and that kind of thing. And I, I'm not entertaining trying to make a statement about that today just to acknowledge the whole being of a person. But in that wholeness of person, it is one. And biological sex and gender are not the same but they are inseparable from one another. And biology is essential for gender. This is what we're learning in the text, friends. False claims of separating mind from body are not new to our generation. They have been made throughout the ages of humanity. And some of the most notable labels that they have flown under are the labels of Gnosticism, the label of mysticism that have carried themselves out in different generations, in different applications, but nonetheless are the same thing. Claims about gender that are counter to God's world Word do not reveal something about God that he missed or some flaw that he, he was not able to correct. Rather, those claims reveal more about the person making the claim and what they think about God. Denying God's design and purpose of two genders, two genders known as gender binary in the vocabulary that is emerging today, is like building a foundation on a sinkhole that's already opened. When we trust God's design, we embrace our gender as his good purpose for our life. And Christians hold that God's design and purpose for sexuality begins with two genders. That's the first aspect. It is the bedrock upon which we lay a foundation of understanding. Now, the second aspect of the foundation is this. Did you realize 
that, that a foundation is only as strong as the material of its composition. I learned this a number of years ago when, when I, I learned there were different kinds of concretes for different applications. I didn't know this. I went to pick up some bags of concrete at the hardware store and I needed to pour a four by four foundation for my HVAC unit. It was sinking in the mud and I was getting frustrated with it. And so I bought the wood and the gravel and I bought the concrete, but they were out of every other kind. So I just saw the only bag of concrete that they had. It was 5,000 PSI. Come to find out that unit's not going anywhere. You see, the strength rating of concrete is determined by the amount of pressure that has been measured that can be applied against it, and it will stand up under. PSI is the common measurement. And the biblical foundation, friends, that God provides for us here is to hold the pressure of life when it is composed by God's plan for sexuality. So the bedrock upon which we build is God's design and his purpose. The composition upon which we build that foundation is God's plan. Where do we find that? The next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but I'll start in 18 and then jump to 20 to continue. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God's created design of two genders that complement one another, that we learn here fit together, enable his creation to obey the very command of creation that he gave to multiply, to exercise dominion and subdue the earth. And so we see here in chapter two, not a second narrative, a different creation, but we see a further explanation or unpacking of what was introduced to us in chapter one. That's what's going on here in these verses. And it tells us that in naming the animals, Adam found no corresponding partner for himself. He got totally bored with what was taking place because everyone he named, he realized two, 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 one. And God said about this what he had not said about anything else. Listen. God said, it is not good. It is not good. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so the scriptures record that God put Adam into a deep sleep. He took the rib from Adam's side and from it he formed the woman. And man, when Adam saw her, he recognized what he saw. It was not like anything else he had exercised dominion over. This was for him. 
There was a correlation from one to the other. She was made for him just as God had promised. And then God states his plan for these two persons, one male and one female, to leave their parents and hold fast to his wife and for those two to become one flesh. Two genders fitted together in marriage for glory in both union and intimacy of oneness. Scholars recognize that there is an innate characteristic with a corresponding role responsibilities for each of the sexes or genders. By God's plan, A man and a woman in marriage are made one flesh by sexual union to fulfill his creational command. This is the composition of our foundation. And this, God said, is very good. Very good. Friends, sexual union is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. And if I might argue with you, we are where we are today, not because we just woke up one day and found something that had never been found before, but we've been taking small incremental steps every time that we've allowed, that we've tolerated, that we've indulged in otherwise in the sexual immorality of any and every form, not just the one in which we find ourselves today. When we distort God's plan We forsake his glory in creation. And you might ask, but really, is it that important and is it that pertinent to the gender debate today that we go back to Genesis and look at sexuality in marriage? And I say it's not only important, it's the foundation. You don't build on this, you're guaranteed shifting sand that's not going to, it may last a day, it may last an hour, it may last a week, it may survive a month, but it will crumble. How do I know? Jesus says it will. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked a question about divorce. And instead of just dealing with the the small details of what the Pharisees are trying to trick and trap him in, Jesus draws it back to the creational narrative and says, look, if you want to understand what you're really asking instead of just trying to trick me, you've got to go back to the foundation that these things must be built on. And he cites Genesis 2, he affirms God's plan of two genders made into one flesh in the marriage covenant. Friends, we don't have to dig deep to realize these truths. But we do have to receive them by faith, to believe and to trust. Jesus recognizes that what Genesis states is the Father's revelation of his good plan for humanity. What I'm presenting to you today is to say, do you? Do you agree with Jesus? The third aspect is, first of all, not only the bedrock of of God's purpose and design. Secondly, not only the material of composition of the marriage covenant and, and God's plan. But thirdly, I want us to look at this, that a foundation and what does it determine? It determines the footprint for what will actually be built. Sometimes we think foundations are just established for what goes underneath. 
Several years ago, Christian, uh, Kristen and I were building a house and it's not the one we live in now, but, but the plans were drawn up and we were ready to go. And the way the home was designed was, was, was the garage was angled with the house because we had to fit it into the, the easements of the property lines. And when the foundation got ready to be poured, the angle of the garage was off two or three inches. Doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Just, I mean, it's just a little bit off. And so when they told me that, I'm like, okay, what's a couple of inches? How big of a deal is this? Well, sir, we wouldn't be talking to you if it weren't a big deal. It's going to change the whole arrangement of that end of the house. We had to come back and rearrange the entire interior of the first floor. And then the second floor had to be totally redesigned on the fly, we, we didn't go back to the drawing board. <laughs> that was more money. Um, we were spending enough already. But, but the second floor had to be completely redesigned in order to work out. Now, just so you know, as a happy ending, we, we ended up loving the house that we got. But it did not come out the way it had been drawn. Why? Because foundations aren't just about what's underneath. They determine the finished product. It's a footprint for what will be produced. And only a biblical foundation will be productive of God's glory in sexuality. That's the third aspect I want you to see. The footprint. It's the glory of sexuality in relationship. This marriage covenant that God brings us into holds a glory for his name in the earth and in creation. And the way that we live this out is because of the foundation that we've established in it. If we want to glorify God in our marriage, we've got to be built on his foundation so that the footprint develops and produces what he intends for us and the glory of, his, of our sexuality in relationship. When we come to this third aspect, we begin to see the uniquenesses and the distinctivenesses of two genders in the marriage relationship. I, I point you to three passages of Scripture that are, quite frankly, some of the most divisive passages of Scripture in all the text. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, the context is this. Paul is addressing a situation in worship. Okay, so I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that, but in doing so, he highlights the distinctiveness between the two genders. So in other words, Paul is addressing a question for worship, but he's drawing it back to the foundation of the distinctions between the genders. And he builds his teaching on the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 to show how it is that those genders relate to one another in order to glorify God. The second time is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. The most expansive teaching on the marriage relationship itself in all the New Testament. Paul's talking about the marriage relationship. And what he does is he instructs the husband and the wife in how they are to relate to one another because of the distinctive roles of their gender. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, Respect your husbands. This is not just pulled out of thin air. It's not just, dude, that's solid counsel. This is the footprint of what God has formed in the foundation that is expressing the glory of sexuality in the marriage relationship. Finally, Peter, in 1 Peter, 
He exhorts husbands in this way. Listen to this. Live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of grace of life. You know, there's some that won't even read this passage of Scripture. It's become so disdainful in the eyes of so many. What is Peter saying here? He is not degrading women. He's teaching how one gender should honor the other. That this is the very essence of what he's saying to us here. He, he, and he says this but because the last phrase, he says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's saying they are equal. Their dignity, their worth is not something other than husbands. They are equal. They are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. But they are not identical to you. In all of my theological training of 34 years now and of many years of growing up in the church before that, I never thought I'd have to preach a sermon arguing for the differences between men and women. No, I'm serious. Do we not know men are from Mars and women are from Venus or something? Like I, I know women that talk and like what they say, I have no idea what they just said because it's on a plane I don't think men communicate on. I'm not talking about just my wife. I'm talking about like women in general. I stood there, I heard the conversation. That is not what God said. You know this is true. What Peter is saying is not a negative remark. He is acknowledging that the strength of the female is not principally an outward display of power, but inner fortitude of spirit. You want to prove this? Listen to a guy talking a little bit of guy smack around the guys, and his wife walks up and boom, he shuts up. And then later he says, if I want her to know that, I will tell her that myself. How do I know that? I've said that. Guys start telling a story and the wife goes, and it stops and it never continues. That's what I'm talking about. Here's what Peter's talking about. He, he's, he's saying something here that is equally glorious, friends, that is not for us to deny, it's not for us to reject, but it's for us to understand and for us to more deeply trust in what God has done. The way a husband and a wife relate ultimately, but even the way men and women in general relate to honor one another in the distinctiveness with which we were created glorifies God by recognizing the equality, the dignity, the value, and the blessing of each one without denying the uniqueness and distinctiveness. And these three aspects form the foundation, friends. They're not cultural stereotypes. They are distinctives of God's design for gender. Another statement I never thought would be controversial is gender is established in biology. This is proven in the very treatment strategies that they're implementing today. Higher levels of testosterone make you something different than higher levels of estrogen. One is not better than the other. It's just not the same. But it does confirm the glory 
of the uniqueness as God's word reveals to us. Dr. Alan Brantz preached here the last Sunday of June this summer. He is a Christian ethicist, a professor at Midwestern Seminary. He used the example of Florence Griffith Joyner. I think this was a phenomenal example. Flojo, she came to be known as, fastest woman who still holds the female world track record in the 100 meter today. She won in 1988. She's no longer alive. She died a, a, a what many would consider a premature death. She was too young. But she was the fastest woman in the world. She is the fastest woman in the world. In that race itself, he pointed out, six high school boys from Missouri have beat her time. Why? Because one is not like the other. And might I just add, it's not because they were eating their Wheaties. Some of you will get that later. I'll return to it next week. A biblical foundation of sexual identity and gender in its architecture, in its engineering, is a solid and sound foundation for all of life. But I'll argue even one more. The emphasis that Genesis gives to it in communicating it and revealing it to us in poetic language tells us that it's not just architecturally sound or engineered in such a way to be solid, but it is artistically, gloriously beautiful. And that's the glory of God in this, friends. Our biblical foundation is God's creational design and purpose, his plan and his glory. Gender dysphoria and transgenderism have become an epidemic of our time and especially among children and teens. It's an intentional agenda, I argue, that's driven with a specific purpose. How Christians should respond to gender dysphoria and how we should respond to transgenderism. That will be the principal focus next week. But I need to make some final comments today before we conclude. First and foremost, we must recognize that gender dysphoria and transgenderism are not the same things. They are not the same things. And that not every situation must or should be treated in the same way. To be very clear, as Christians, we do not deny that people experience gender dysphoria. That that, that is not necessary for us. It's not true. Dr. Branch against helps us here when he says that a Christian stance acknowledges biological factors, home environment, past experiences, and human volition that can all contribute to gender dysphoria. We do reject, however... The demand of actions for acceptance and affirmation based on foregone conclusions of theory that are unproven, that are without fact, that are misleading, that are deceptive, and that I will argue next week are abusive and destructive. We reject that. For those who struggle with gender dysphoria, we should never shame nor should we shun. We open our arms and we welcome them to love them and walk with them. But Christians walk in the light of God's truth, not the darkness of transgenderism's lie. Carl Truman, in his landmark work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, describes our times this way. 
in a world of empathy-based ethics, the moral sense is ultimately the aesthetic sense. And that means that when the sacred order collapses, morality is simply a matter of taste, not truth. The foundation for morality has eroded and we are left with whatever looks good. And this too is not new, for even judges resonates. In that day, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so I ask you, what aspects form your foundation of sexuality and gender? Before you proceed to any situation, you must consider this. Because how you respond and address will not begin with the situations that you encounter in gender dysphoria and transgenderism, but will come out of the foundation that you have laid about God, about life, about this world, and about other people. It begins with how you respond to God's word regarding sexual identity and gender. Christians understand everything through the creational narrative that forms our foundation. I start with you in Genesis. I take you to Matthew 19. I take you to 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. And I take you to 1 Peter to argue this. This is what God reveals to us. This is what Jesus said is right for us. This is what Paul and Peter and ultimately the apostles understood God's will to be for us. Today's voices speak a counter narrative. And if you listen, your foundation will be built on an ever-shifting ideology that denies God and seeks to remake him in human image. But when you build your life on God's truth, the storms will blow, but you will stand on the rock of his word that cannot be moved and walk in the light of his truth a light that cannot be dimmed. And so I say, Christians, honor Jesus as Lord when we stand on the truth of a biblical foundation for sexuality and gender. And I conclude by drawing us back to 1 Peter 3. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a reason to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's how I want you to apply setting your heart to honor Christ today. Obviously, understanding the doctrine of God's word as our design for all of life, not wavering on this. But I want to invite you to engage the situation because none of us in the room are unaffected by it. Most of us are directly encountering it. Commit to read a resource to better understand and prepare yourself. I am not advocating a scientific ignorance that just bludgeons people with some kind of Bible fact. That is not Christian at all. We need not fear the truth of science in this, friends. We need to seek the truth because all truth is God's. One resource I commend to you that I believe is most approachable for all is affirming God's design. I've already quoted from it today. 
He references science. He gives the findings and summarizes it without getting into the weeds that many of us would get lost in. But he builds his arguments on the creational narrative of God's word as we have done today. That's Dr. Branch. If you are in a science field, there are resources available to you that go far more deeply into the scientific studies and the things that are done today. If you are in the legal field, there are legal resources to help you understand what's going on in the legal field. I want to provide those for you. And if you are a parent, I'll finish with this one. I keep saying that. I promise I'm going to. If you're a parent, here's your step of application. Start early. Teach your children about sexual, sexuality, sexual identity, about gender. I know the most uncomfortable conversations that you'll ever have are these. Your kid will roll you over, not knowing what they're doing, but giggling, they'll make you feel uncomfortable. Listen to me. If you have sexual sin in your past, that is not a legitimate excuse to not bring the truth of God's word to bear for your children's lives. Repent and walk forward in the light of God's truth and teach your children what God's word says about their life. We have a host of resources starting at age three going all the way into young adulthood. Wherever you are today, just start the conversation. I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna be one-sided. Don't stop. Just keep talking about it. You teach them the glory of God's good pleasure and design for sexuality. And you teach them that God has a plan for their life in the very way that he made them. He loves them and he wants to see a beautiful life from them. That's true of God's word. It's true for your children. No one can teach them what you can, but everyone is trying to today. Let's pray.